All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Avram Weiss. Dr. Weiss is an award-winning author, speaker, teacher, and consultant. He is nationally recognized for his pioneering work developing the theory and application of experiential psychotherapy and his groundbreaking work on a comprehensive theory of change in individuals and organizations. He's trained hundreds of psychotherapists in a more personal relational model of psychotherapy, and his work in the last decade has focused on developing a new understanding of the internal lives of men and helping men and women gain new understanding of each other, which has culminated in the pul- publication of his most recent book, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. So Dr. Weiss, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to have a chance to talk with you. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little about just your kind of background and just your, your route into your current line of work. Did you always know that you wanted to be involved in psychotherapy? How did you, how did you originally get interested? I had an unusual path in that um, I was in, uh, there was sort of a summer therapeutic program for teens when I was 17 years old and actually got recruited and started training. I had my first job as a therapist when I was 18 years old. And at 19, I was actually the night manager in a residential treatment program for adolescent addicts. So I have an incredibly boring professional life. I have literally been doing the same thing for 50 years this year. Interesting. That, that's got to be, I've never heard of a, a, someone doing therapy at that, that young of an age that, that had to have been, um, yeah, that, I mean, I guess that's, that was an awesome opportunity for you to get started at a really early age. Well, the, the world was a little less regimented then. There were, there were more opportunities, you know, less credentialed. There were more opportunities to try things then than I think there are today. Sure, sure. So tell me about kind of the specific sort of approaches to psychotherapy that you started implementing with your patients and just what, what you found to be most effective. Well, the work in the last 10 years, I've focused on working with men. And uh, that's where I sort of came up with this idea. It's not that I came up with the idea. It's that I started realizing that men were talking to me about how frightened they were of their partners. And it's not, they don't, they don't talk about being scared, but they talk about all the situations in their lives. And you realize that underneath it, what they're trying to tell you is that they are intimidated by their partners. The classic example, which I think most people will relate to, is the guy who's at work with his friends and the friends say, um, let's, we're going to get together after work and go for a drink. Do you want to join us? And for many guys, their first thought is what? Uh, what, would what, what, would, what would my wife think? Exactly. Or... Before they even have a chance to think whether or not they want to go with these people, whether they like these people want to go out with them. But the sad thing about that is that um, it's not, it's very often that their partner is very happy for them to go out with friends because often women are sort of worried that their partners don't have many friends and they wish they would go out more with their friends. So they're, their sort of knee-jerk concern that she'll be disapproving doesn't really come from her. It comes from sort of more deep-seated fears that many men have of women. 
And that's what I've been working on for the last 10 years is understanding that and seeing how common it is, almost universal. So what are, what are some of those causes that you've identified of those deep-seated fears? Sure. Well, some of the fears themselves, some of the most common ones are men are often very concerned about being dominated and controlled by women or being trapped by women. Men are often very concerned about being criticized by women. They're worried about women thinking that they're inadequate or not up to, not masculine enough. And underneath all of those is a deep-seated fear that most men have and don't realize is what's, that they're afraid of women leaving them. They're afraid of being abandoned by women. Okay. And it, are, those, are those fears ones that you think often kind of just take root kind of in, in childhood, in our upbringing, yes. or there are different events that take place? Yes, absolutely. There's a, you know, I would encourage listeners to, if you, if you want a sort of powerful experience, is Google the still face experiment, S-T-I-L-L. The link is in the book if you have trouble finding it. Um, and this is your experiments done back in the 60s or 70s, and they have a split screen with the mom in one screen and the infant in the other. And you can see that there's, a, even though they're babies, you can see there's a conversation obviously not with words, but there's a conversation back and forth between them. The mom makes a funny face, the baby laughs. So they're reinforcing each other and learning how to get a response from each other. And then in the experiment, the mom is instructed to turn away and turn back with just a straight face, not an angry face, not a critical or disapproving face. And you can see the babies within a minute being completely undone. They start crying, they start sobbing, they start desperately trying to get their mother's attention. So that's in all of us, that sort of ingrained need to please our mothers and to make sure that our mothers are attending to us and taking care of us. Now, if you're a heterosexual man and you want a woman as a partner, those same dynamics play out for you when you choose a partner, that same hyper-focus, that same fear about disapproval, that same fear about distance or detachment. For women, it's obviously different for straight women because they're not marrying their mothers. They're not recreating the same dynamic. They're marrying men, not women. And so it's different for women. But for men, it starts right there. And what are, you know, I mean, I guess besides the example that you gave of, you know, the guy that's, you know, too, too hesitant to go out with his friends and, you know, instead thinking about what his wife's going to think of that, you know, what are, what are some of the other ways in which these fears can manifest themselves in men's lives? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'll, t I'll describe to you an argument that I, you don't have to say whether you've had this argument, but most people listening, I assure you, have had some version of this argument. And the argument goes like this. The woman bring up, brings up something that she's unhappy with in the relationship. And she does this with the intent of trying to get closer. This is, this is her effort to talk through something and get closer. But the man doesn't hear it as an effort to get closer. The man hears it as a criticism. Why? Because men are trained to believe that they are responsible for their partner's happiness. And so if their partner is unhappy about anything, to men, that means I'm failing as a man. So in the woman's end, she's seeing this as an attempt to start an intimate conversation and talk through something 
men experience it as almost an assault, certainly something to be defended against. So men do what men do, which is they withdraw to protect themselves. Now you have a situation in which the woman is pursuing to make connection, but the man is withdrawing. So of course the woman is now even more upset about not being connected and pursues more and the man withdraws more. And that's why arguments between men and women escalate the way they do and so often don't get anywhere because we're really working at cross purposes and don't even realize it. Okay. And then in terms of when you kind of think about the, the way that these men who have these sort of fears, you know, what, what, where do they start in terms of, do they need to kind of understand where, where those fears are being, or where they first kind of got started, kind of getting to the root of that with something like psychotherapy? Uh, can they just change their behaviors? Does that, is that sufficient enough? Yeah. Like what, what sort of advice do you have for, for those men? So it's really important to me what you're talking about. And um, so the, I put a lot of care into, there's a chapter in the book. The, the last three chapters of the book are what men can do to help themselves, what women can do to help men, and what couples can do with each other to help. And one of the recommendations I make to men is that I think it goes better for men to talk about this stuff with other men before they try to talk with their partner about it. And so there are some very sort of step-by-step, -step, I guess, instructions or guidelines for men about how to find other men in a support group kind of setting, read the book together, form a kind of book club, and then meet regularly to talk with each other in a more personal way about their relationship with women. I think then men are ready to talk with their partners. Once they have the support of other men, it's easier for them to then and then what a lot of couples have told me they're doing, which I think is just a great idea. I didn't think of it myself, but they're reading the book together. They read a chapter at a time. And at the end of each chapter, they make time to sit and talk with each other about it. So I think that's another thing. I think that's a great thing for couples to do. And for the women listening, I'll say to you, you will learn more about your partner in those conversations than you could even imagine. So I guess the, the conversations that, that men have with other men, is it, is it more so kind of, there, there has to be some amount of comfort that gets developed of like realizing that other men are probably dealing with some of the same issues, the same fears that, that you might be, yeah. is that kind of the, the main purpose of like talking to other men first or? I think that that's certainly the first purpose and and reading the book together takes away some of the awkwardness because it gives you a focus. It gives you something to talk about. You know, we're talking about chapter three this week and all you have to do is read chapter three. You don't have to dig into your soul um, to show up and talk with the other guys. But then, of course, as you practice being more open and talking more about yourself around the structure of the book, then you get more comfortable with it and can sort of ad lib and do it more with other men. And then I think that practice helps you to be more skilled and more comfortable doing it with your wife or partner. Okay. I see. I mm -hmm. see. And, and then I guess when, when men do bring this stuff up, like with their partner, do you find that from the feedback that you've heard or their partners or women in general are pretty responsive to the, the sort of the way that the men 
bring these kind of concerns up or just what, what does that process entail of communicating men's fears to women? I have actually been um, flabbergasted at how open women are because um, I've been asking women recently, what did your mother teach you about men, either through words or through the way she treated your father? And what most women tell me, and it's kind of concerning, but what most women tell me is that their mothers taught them to not think much of men, to not respect them, to not rely on them, to not expect to be close to them. And so this book gives women a different way of understanding men, which is less critical and more empathic. Let me read you a quote from a woman who was in a workshop on this topic. She said, I understand that my husband has not been ignoring, dismissing, or hurting me out of a lack of respect, as I suspected, but that he's scared, scared to hurt me, scared to mess up with me, and scared to not be enough. I had honestly never imagined that he was scared, that I was so profoundly important to him that he was constantly terrified I would leave him. So in some ways, surprisingly to me, women in many instances have gotten more from reading this book than the men have. Super interesting. So in terms of, uh, in terms of like when, I guess, just having these conversations aren't enough, what, what do you, how, how do you sort of utilize, I guess, like kind of what, what's in the book and just sort of your therapeutic experience? Like, is this, is this stuff that people, you know, oftentimes you, you treat in terms of, uh, with therapy, you do couples therapy, or how does how does that work? If if just reading the book and having these conversations, maybe with their partner, isn't enough. Um, I I think what I recommend to most couples is you know buy the book and read it and have conversations and see where you get to. And therapy is something you should think about if you can't have those conversations. If the book is not enough to help you, you know, if you're hitting the same brick wall again and again, at that point, you might want to consider calling a therapist. But I think for a lot of couples, just reading the book together can really make a big difference in and of itself. Got it. Okay. So Dr. Weiss, I wanted to ask you kind of, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of other, uh, in terms of other fears that might that men might have, you know, when it comes to disappointing their partners or women in general, like what besides what we've touched on so far, you know, what what other fears can there be? Well, I'll tell you another one that's a that's an interesting one, uh, I think, um, which is that men are and and I think you'll see the truth in this pretty quickly. Men are really scared of women's emotions. And you recognize the truth of this because in most arguments between men and women, men are always trying to calm women down. So men say things to women in arguments like, stop being so emotional, be rational, behave like an adult. Why do men do that? Why is it so important to men to keep the conversation in a rational, logical, linear vein? Well, the reason is that um, men are not as comfortable with emotions. Men are not socialized to learn about our emotional lives. And so when we get into intimate relationships with women, women are much more comfortable with relationships and much more practiced at relationships. So there's a point in childhood where boys and girls play together. 
And then at some age, the girls start playing with the girls and the boys start playing with the boys. So the girls are playing with the girls and what are they playing? They're practicing relationships. They play house, school, doctor, all kinds of games in which they're role-playing relationships and practicing relationships. So by the time they get to dating, I remember my wife told me when she was a little girl that she used to practice kissing the back of her hand all the time. She was literally preparing herself to be in a relationship with a man. Boys go off and play with boys and what do we play? We practice competition and aggression. We play sports, we play competition. We, we don't work on relationships at all. And so then when we come back together, if you're straight and you come back together with women in a relationship, they're leagues ahead of us. They're way more emotionally developed. They're way more comfortable relationship, experiencing relationships. And so we're scared because we're outgunned. You know, we're out, uh, they're, they're talking Chinese. We don't understand what they're talking about. And it's intimidating to men. What do you think about the, the phrase like toxic masculinity and just, you know, what we've seen kind of online in terms of, you know, it seems like there's, you know, been an increasingly growing maybe divide between men and women, men who take like very like radical stances, um, I guess women who then kind of defend those stances and, uh, or, or not defend are opposed obviously to those stances and then attack men for it and the, that whole term of, of toxic masculinity then um yeah is that i mean just just a sort of guess on my part is that toxic masculinity then are those behaviors oftentimes sort of a maybe a cover-up of these like underlying fears that you discuss absolutely yes absolutely that's that's really insightful of you yeah it's a really important topic um what what a lot of us are writing about now is that when you're born female, when you're born a woman, well, you're not born, born a girl and become a woman, um, you don't have to do anything to be female. You, we consider you female, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to defend it, you don't have to justify it. But for men, we teach men that you're not a man until you earn being a man. And that you have to fight to prove that you're a man and then you have to defend that against any sign that that might not be true. And unfortunately, what toxic masculinity mostly refers to, in our culture, there's not a proactive thing that we tell men, this is what masculinity is. It's really defined more in opposition. In our culture, to be a man means to not be feminine. And so any sign of femininity leaves you subject to other people attacking you as not masculine. The problem is that we consider intimacy, closeness, emotional openness, friendship, we consider all those things feminine. So that means that men are always having to watch themselves to make sure that they don't seem too vulnerable, that they don't seem too needy, that they don't seem too emotional because they'll be then judged to be not masculine. So I'll tell you a great story about that. There's a primitive tribe that has an a male initiation rite, right? And at around the age of puberty, the boys live in the hut with the women until this rite. And then the middle of the night, the men come and they kidnap the boy dressed in scary costume. They take him out in the woods and they brutalize him for two or three days to make a man out of him. So again, it's interesting what we think about how you make someone a man. 
So the boy comes back to the village and in the custom of this culture, the mother goes out to the edge of the village and meets the boy, now man. And an interesting thing happens at that point. The young man is instructed to slap his mother in the face and then go to the women's hut and get his stuff and move into the men's hut. So my question is, why slap her? Why not just walk into the village, get your stuff and move into the men's hut? What symbolic function does slapping his mother? Why is that a part of the ritual? Uh, it seems like some amount of disrespect. Uh, you were breaking up, saying on some amount of what? So, I mean, it seems like for some for some reason that the disrespectful behavior, I mean, uh, the disrespect of a woman, I guess seems like, yes. The, yeah. Yes. They're showing the other men, they're showing the other men that they don't need their mother anymore. Mm -hmm. In order to be accepted as a man, they have to reject the feminine in front of the other men. Got it. And that's what toxic masculinity is, is teaching men that to be masculine means to be not feminine, as if the two were opposites, when in fact, there's a lot more about men and women that's alike than is different. But we teach men to be afraid of anything that seems like femininity. So that leaves men, for example, incredibly lonely. Most men are very lonely and loneliness is a huge problem in this culture. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when uh, what you your opinion is of kind of what was previously done with with MDMA as a, as a psychotherapy or MDMA assisted psychotherapy back before it became um, illegal. Um, now, obviously, we're seeing some of the, the clinical uh, phase three clinical trials, where it may again become uh, legal to do MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Um, specifically, I know for the applications for PTSD. But I know before it became illegal, there were a lot of a lot of applications, um, you know, in psychotherapy and specifically in, in couples counseling and kind of helping men and women maybe see eye to eye or discuss their issues more and just kind of what we had talked about, what you had said about, you know, men may not necessarily being as in touch with their emotions or having kind of problems being open with, with their emotions. Uh, you know, what, what is your opinion? Do you have a strong opinion on kind of MDMA as a, as a potential therapeutic option? Yeah, I would, I would say it's less of an opinion than as someone who reads the research. Um, MDMA and other uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies were used as far back as the 60s with um, death and dying with very, very positive outcome. And, the, and that research was discontinued, not because it wasn't helpful, but because of the hysteria about the drugs. Um, and so now they're using MDA, actually just this morning, I had a conversation with a colleague who's in the training program right now, and it's very exciting stuff. And they're using it with death and dying, and they're using it with trauma, with very exciting outcomes. And, and I don't have any doubt that that would be the case, um, because it just makes sense that it would. I think that drugs like MDMA uh, provide a sort of gentle access to the unconscious, which is largely guarded against and hard to access. So I think used with trained therapists, I think it's going to be tremendously helpful, particularly to very severely traumatized people. Awesome.
It, do you see that? I, I would add, just as a consumer, sorry, let me just add one thing then to sure. that because I get concerned about what people take from that. That does not mean that you should go down to the corner and buy some ecstasy and try it out on yourself. Most cultures who use drugs like this for therapeutic effect are very clear that it's not done recreationally, it's done therapeutically, and it's always done with a guide in a controlled setting. Right, right. Do you ever see yourself, you know, becoming like a, a psychedelic assisted therapist? If, if I were earlier in my career, absolutely. And I, I kudos to my colleague who is almost as old as I am and is, is learning a whole new set of skills at this stage in her career. I'm at, I'm at the tail end of my career. I'm winding down my career. But um, if I were in the middle of my career or the beginning of my career, absolutely would be very interested.